Yes. Right, it is two o'clock, and I'm oh, Sheila Styron, the chair of the um, Transportation Task Force. And on behalf of the task force and the Environmental Access Committee, chaired by Becky Davidson, we are proud to invite you, welcome you to the final day of our transportation forum. We have had four, um, three amazing days. Um, just give a brief recap. Um, thank you to ACB Radio for hosting us today. Thank you for Cindy for helping us out and to all of the guests and all of the hard work that have gone into everything we've done so far. Last Sunday, we had some amazing sessions. We, we had some education from three wonderful presenters. Um, Carol Ketcherside taught us about funding for infrastructure and transit, and Christopher Bell talked to us about the laws that we all have to operate within when we're doing our access and thinking about how we're going to move our issues forward. And then we had Adam Cohen who from UC Berkeley who talked to us about some of the things coming down the pipe for the future. Then we moved on to Monday and Tuesday. We had four great workshops. The first one was presented by Becky Davidson and Karen Gorgie where we talked about APS, leading pedestrian intervals, and all manner of other things that we have to deal with when we are out on the streets crossing or walking along the sidewalks. We had um, a session on paratransit, the current state of it, and some of the other shared ride vehicle situations that we are currently working with and what has been happening to them in the pandemic and what they might look like moving along. We had a discussion on rural, that was from Mr. Patrick Sheehan, who's of course an ACB board member from Silver Springs, Maryland. And then we had a session on the rural issues that people deal with. They roll up the sidewalks ably presented by our own Connie Sims, who was one of the winners for the, um, Morgan Chase Leadership Fellows. Oh, I don't know if I said that right. That's okay. Uh, I'm not looking at anything written down, so forgive me. Um, so, and, and she was assisted by Patrick Sheehan and Lyle Sim from Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. And there are certainly different issues than, than you know, in the country than we have to deal with in the city. Um, and finally, yesterday, our own Ron Brooks had a discussion about paratransit and where, where we would like to take it from here, if we could rebuild it from the ground up. He had some very well-designed questions, drove our, um, <laughs> drove our Zoom operator a little crazy, um, but he did a great job. Um, Brandon, I believe it was, um, and he had to deal with a lot of raising of hands and putting hands down. But we've compiled, or rather Ron has compiled, the information from all those four work sessions, and he will momentarily be presenting that to us as part of our final day here in our transportation forum. And as we wrap all of this up and Ron summarizes our key findings, we will take a short break at about quarter of whichever hour you tend to find yourself in. And um, we'll take about a 15 minute break and we will then um, be pleased to present our final speaker um, who will talk to us about how to build local coalitions that can support our transportation advocacy efforts. And her name is Judy Shandley, and she's from the National Center on Mobility for Easter Seals. So we have a very full day here, and without further ado, um, I'd like to get Cindy to please announce our CEU number, and then Ron, if you will pick it up. Thank you everyone for coming.
All right. Thank you, Sheila. And I know now that you live in central time as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I am. And I, yeah. you know, <laughs> I haven't done anything too silly. You don't, you don't even know. I, it's so hard to keep the time straight, you know. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Um, so if you signed up for continuing education credits, your starting code for this long session, so it's like a two-in-one session, uh, is nine five D as in donut thirty one? That's nine five D as in donut three one. Thank you, Sheila. And now, Mr. Ron Brooks. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I am coming to you from uh, my little uh, home office in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where it is just past high noon. And it is just past 105 outside. It's a beautiful day. So I'm really glad to be inside chatting with all of you about transportation uh, to mobility and beyond. Before I dive in, I want to talk about why we called it to mobility and beyond. Um, aside from the fact that uh, to infinity beyond was just a really awesome line from a really awesome uh, movie, Toy Story. Um, Mobility is now the new norm. You know, in the old days, we talked about transportation and accessibility, and we still talk about those things. But the point of transportation isn't just the art of just getting to go, go, you know, go around in circles. The point is to, is to go places, do things, accomplish things, contribute to things, participate in things, which is really funny because right now, of course, we're not really going too many places and participating in too many things, at least in person. But mobility is the idea that we, have, that we can do those things. Uh, transportation in and of itself is nothing special. Infrastructure in and of itself is nothing special. It's what transportation and infrastructure allow us to accomplish that is special. And we want to have a focus on the things that are important. And transportation and infrastructure projects are the things that help us achieve the mobility that we need and want to do the things that are important to us. So our goal is to have a policy or a, an advocacy platform within our organization that allows us to do the things that we all talk about doing. So our goal for this entire workshop, and Sheila kind of walked you through what we did over the last few days is to build a series of, we'll call them planks, that can form the basis for an advocacy platform that we can use at the national, state, and local level to advocate for the kind of mobility that we want to have. And later in this session today, Judy Shanley, whom I've known for a number of years within the transit industry, is going to share a superpower, uh, which if we have it, we can achieve a lot more than if we don't have it, and that's the art of building coalitions. What I, but before we can be an effective partner in a coalition, we need to know what we want, and we need to know what, what success looks like, and that was really what we wanted to do. So I'm going to start by walking through quickly the four group discussions and hitting some high points, and then talk about some key findings that really represent the, the culmination of, of everything that those groups discussed. Today is not, the, the goal today is not to have that advocacy platform all built. The goal today is to identify what are the pieces that could be part of that platform so that you all who are in the audience and, and um, listening and participating via Zoom um, can tell us what you think, help us refine our feelings, make your voice heard as part of this process. Once this meeting takes place today, we will go back as committees, the Transportation Committee and the Environmental Access Committee and we will take these findings from the group discussions and your comments from today, and we will start to hone that into a, an advocacy strategy that we can then work with the resolutions committee or the board 
or whoever's appropriate to make real. And that's, so this part of the process is really important because this is the point where you can really help us make sure that we are addressing the issues that are important to you. So I'm gonna just jump right in. And I just, okay, here we go. So the first conversation that we had, and I'm gonna take these roughly in the order that we encountered them. So the first conversation we had, and these documents, by the way, are posted. Uh, they are uh, posted, if they're not posted already, they will be on the ACB uh, convention page under this committee. The, um, uh, the, they have also been shared uh, via the ACB uh, list, the ACB leadership list via email, and they've also been shared on the ACB community page on Facebook. So this information's out there, uh, and I encourage you to check it out. It'll go into a lot more detail than I'm going to go into right now. So the first group that had its meeting uh, was the was really focused on pedestrian and environmental access. And the, really the key finding, this group really looked at uh, what well, we called it uh, reading the signs and navigating the chaos. And we called it that because really navigating in the pedestrian environment has become somewhat more chaotic because of the complexity of intersections, the challenges that are posed by uh, e-scooters and e-bikes and other things that get left all over sidewalks and street corners. And so we really wanted to focus a part of our conversation around those issues. And I think short of reading every single word on the, the, the next six pages of notes that I have in front of me, I think the key for this group is a couple of things. One, as we still continue to believe that audible pedestrian signals need to be uh, installed at every location where there is a signalized intersection. That has been ACB policy for a long time. That continues to be our recommendation. And to refine that a little bit further, as new technologies like something called leading pedestrian intervals, which are basically uh, light cycles that allow pedestrians a head start on traffic, those, anywhere that those exist, there need to be APS installed and they need to be synchronized with those lead pedestrian intervals so that people who are blind or visually impaired have the same information at the crossing that everybody else does and the same time to cross. We believe that once an accessible pedestrian signal is installed, it should stay there. And some communities have a, an approach where they have a number of these things and if a blind person requests one, they'll place it in service. And then if the blind person moves, they will take it out of service as, as though the only person who ever used it was the blind person who requested it. We think that that's a very poor practice and it, and it really creates safety risk and it, and it shouldn't occur. In order to protect the, pedest the, the safety and convenience of, of blind, visually impaired and other pedestrians, there need to be standards about how and where scooters, e-bikes, and other technologies that use the sidewalks are stored, uh, how they're managed, and how they're kept out of the way. So again, right now, it's kind of the Wild West out there. We think that those things need to be addressed. We talked a lot about the pedestrian uh, right-of-way accessibility guidelines. This has been a document that was prepared as a draft by uh, the Access Board a number of years back. It's never actually been implemented. Um, it has some challenges. We do think that having guidelines is important. Um, we need to have a conversation about what those guidelines look like, and then they need to be, uh, once they're created, uh, hopefully correctly, they need to be uh, enforced. So then we moved on to urban transportation. So we, we're talking about transportation in urban settings. These are communities of more than 200,000 people, uh, major metropolitan areas. Yeah, they have issues kind of unto themselves. And you know, one of the things that has certainly happened and we talked about a lot is that the pandemic has impacted the current state of transportation. Uh, transportation is much less available. 
uh, transit frequencies have been reduced, service areas have been eliminated, uh, or at least temporarily eliminated, uh, paratransit service um, demand went down and the service has been curtailed uh, in some cases. And, and now we're looking at revenue challenges. So you know, communities that pay for their public transit, mostly with local funds, they have CARES Act money from the federal government uh, as part of the uh, pandemic bailouts that Congress passed. Th those payments are there, but when those payments run out, local revenues are pretty low as well. So there is a concern about the longer term health of public transit and paratransit. Uh, and we didn't really have an answer uh, for that other than that we need to continue to advocate uh, for funding, uh, for transportation, uh, and recognize that the funding picture is pretty bleak right now. Um, so we, we also wanna talk about the fact that traditional paratransit, we'll talk a lot more about this uh, in a few minutes, but traditional paratransit um, is a very costly service. There are alternatives that cost less. Um, we should be looking at those alternatives, uh, especially given the funding picture. So then we talked about rural transportation and there were some interesting statistics when you talk about rural and small towns. So these are communities less than 50,000. Uh, these, these are rural areas. These are areas where transportation looks very different. Um, one of the interesting statistics, 97% of the land mass within the United States falls within what is categorized as rural and small town America. So the vast majority, 97%, of the land, about 19% of the population lives in those areas. So, you know, we tend to think of rural and small town issues as maybe a little bit um, less, we don't talk about them as much, but they affect a fifth of the people that live in our country. So they are, they are super important and we need to keep them uh, in mind as we, as we create advocacy positions, as we think about transportation in our country, we need to remember the 20% of people who do not live in large cities and metropolitan areas. Um, these, are, these communities have also been hit very hard by the pandemic, really in roughly the same ways, although it's worse uh, in small communities. In some cases, transit has been eliminated altogether. Um, in other cases, inner city transportation that got you maybe from a small town to a slightly larger community service has been curtailed or cut. And yeah, I live in Phoenix. If a bus route gets cut, there's 10 other bus routes. Um, even if they all get cut in half, there's still quite a bit of service. But if you live in a small town like Minot, North Dakota, or uh, Laramie, Wyoming, or, um, you know, I don't know, name a town, uh, the cutting of a route could be the difference between whether you can go anywhere or not go anywhere. Um, so one of the things and we talked a lot about with rural transportation is the need to coordinate transportation. There are many other types of transportation that takes place in rural communities. Um, medical transportation, uh, transportation that is provided to veterans, uh, transportation, and Judy, by the way, is an expert on all of this stuff. Um, there are opportunities, there are models for how coordination could look uh, to try to stretch those resources farther. We should be doing that in all communities, but especially in rural communities and small towns where there really is a need to make every dollar go as absolutely far as it possibly can. We need to look to, to places that do a better job of that, as Pennsylvania was mentioned, uh, and we need to look at uh, yeah, other models for how to do that. We talked about an organization called the Federal uh, Coordination Council for Accessibility and, and for Access and Mobility. That's a federal um, body that has been created uh, in theory to coordinate uh, transportation at the federal level. Uh, it has had a checkered history of effectiveness, uh, but it's something that, is, that exists it's, uh, and it, we need to uh, pay attention to what that group is doing and encourage that group to be um, super uh, active in the space of coordination. Uh, we also need to talk about sidewalks and accessibility in small towns as well. That is not always thought of as a small town issue. A lot of smaller towns don't have a lot of sidewalks. Uh, but if there was ever a place where 
uh, people need more access to sidewalks and um, the pedestrian environment, it's small towns where transit is typically pretty limited. And then we got into paratransit and we, we had a session on if we could design paratransit from the ground up, what would it look like? Um, so we, we talked about the fact that paratransit is, is currently tied to fixed route public transit. So if you have public transit, there's a federal mandate to provide paratransit uh, based on the idea that the, you know, the ADA requires people to have access to the same services that everybody else has. The thing that the organization, and we've had this conversation many, many times, is given that 95% of Americans, uh, and this number, you know, it's, it's a little higher in some communities, a little lower in others, but about 95% of Americans do not primarily use public transit. They, they use the other public transit, which is called roads um, and cars, because roads are subsidized, bridges are subsidized, highways are subsidized, those are public transit systems, just like buses are. Why, why is paratransit not uh, tied to the availability that 95% of Americans have, which is access to roads? So this is a, it's a complicated conversation. Um, it is not grounded in what the ADA currently says, uh, but as an organization, you know, we have many people with disabilities and many people that we represent or who are members who live in communities who don't necessarily have public transit in the places where they need to go, they still need to have transportation. And it makes sense for us, we think, to talk in terms of uh, de-linking the requirement for paratransit from the requirement for public transit. Because again, public transit includes the system that 95% of the population uses, which is roads. So that'll be an interesting conversation as we go forward. Um, we talked a lot about the difference between traditional paratransit and uh, what I'm going to call some of the newer models of transportation, things like on-demand transportation that uses uh, taxi cabs, ride, uh, TNC services like Uber and Lyft, uh, services that have more flexibility. Um, and we talked about what, if we could look at the current you know, look at what people want to use for transportation, what would that system look like? And we did a little survey, and what we, and it was an informal, non-scientific survey. We think there's a reason and a need to maybe do a little bit more scientific surveying, uh, but based on what we had anecdotally from the 168 or so folks who were in the room, is that when we look at traditional paratransit, people like the fact that drivers are trained that drivers are expected to provide door-to-door -door service and that drivers have an emphasis on safety. And what I take that to mean is that there is a belief that private, that the drivers who drive for Uber or who drive for Lyft or who drive for the average cab company don't have those same levels of training, expectations, and focus on safety. So, if we are going to do anything with traditional paratransit, this we need to keep. We need to keep the emphasis on driver training safety and door-to-door -door service. When we talk about traditional paratransit, here are things people did not like. Uh, people expressed that they don't like booking trips in advance. Um, they don't like not knowing when the vehicle will arrive. Uh, Typically, we're given a pickup window. Um, usually, not always, the vehicle arrives within it, but it could be a 30 or 40 minute pickup window. And it's hard to plan your life knowing that twice a day, you're basically captive to your front door um, or to the curb waiting for a vehicle which is gonna arrive at some point. Um, people don't like knowing, uh, they don't like not knowing how long a trip is gonna take. In a shared ride environment, you might get picked up for your 30-minute trip to work early and get there an hour early because there was no trip sharing. Uh, tomorrow, you might get picked up a half an hour later because somebody was late, uh, have three, three shares along the way and end up getting to work an hour and a half later. So people don't like that. They, they're actually more willing to share their ride um, if they know how long the ride is gonna take. It's the not knowing that is the problem. People don't like riding in vehicles they don't need. Uh, they like riding in a smaller vehicle. Smaller cars tend to be more comfortable. 
uh, people who need wheelchair accessibility like wheelchair accessible vehicles because they need them, but people who don't need those vehicles don't like them. They're too big, they're not comfortable, they're not necessary, um, and you know, they're, they're kind of awkward. Uh, and people really were frustrated by the lack of, of technology that is effective for booking and managing trips. Uh, that, that was something that came up repeatedly. So we found out, we did some other kinds of surveying. We found out the customers prefer on-demand transportation uh, slightly, um, let me just read this again. Uh, they prefer on-demand service slightly more than they prefer direct rides. So if given the choice between an on-demand trip, meaning that they can call uh, right now up to about two hours in advance, or they can ride in a direct ride and not have to share, they actually prefer the on-demand more, at least in this group, than they preferred um, giving up a shared ride. So they would take a shared ride if they can book it in advance. Um, customers strongly, and by a margin of about seven to one, uh, preferred a ride in a non-agency vehicle if the ride is direct over a shared ride in an agency-owned vehicle driven by a driver wearing a uniform. Now again, this is the ACB. These are folks who uh, typically don't need wheelchair accessible vehicles. So it's not necessarily representative of the whole disability community, but within this community, it was literally a seven to one split for the 170-ish people that were in the room, favoring a direct ride in a non-agency vehicle over a shared ride in an agency vehicle. So then we asked people to rank in, in a term, uh, the importance of six values or six service attributes. And I'm not gonna give the numbers, um, that data is available. Uh, but I just want to give them in order. Um, the most important thing that people identified was the ability to book a trip with a mobile app or an accessible website. People like to manage their own service. They, this was a, the strongest variable. The second was being able to request the trips close to the scheduled pickup time, aka on-demand service. Third most important, being able to predict travel time even if it's a shared trip. So knowing how long the trip is gonna take. Fourth, being able to make a short stop along the way. Um, if you have had kids, um, you know that, well actually that's the wrong one, I'm sorry. If you um, have ever had to go to the bank, if you've ever had to make a stop uh, for something that you forgot on the way home from work, you, know, you can't do that on a paratransit system typically. Next, Riding alone and no trip sharing, people really, um, you know, this, this was actually ranked lower than I thought it would. Um, people actually um, were not as opposed to trip sharing as long as there was on-demand service and it was flexible and, and it ran well. And then last but not least, the lowest, the lowest of the six service attributes that we asked people to, take a, to, to express their value on, uh, the lowest ranked one was riding in an agency-owned vehicle. Um, to put it simply, one in four actually care that the agency that the vehicle has the agency branding and it's driven by an agency or, or a contractor employee. Three out of four did not care. This was not important to them. So, and I won't go on, we asked attributes of a perfect uh, system and they kind of went along with what I just described. You know, on demand, flexible, easy to make changes. Uh, I, I can use an app. Uh, I don't have to call ahead, um, I can make a stop. You know, those were the kinds of things people identified. So we got through all of that, and what I wanna do now is just kind of summarize what our key kind of recommendations are that we think form the basis for a, um, for, for a possible transportation advocacy platform. And again, we're gonna hear your comments here in just a few minutes, um, and once we do, we're gonna take your comments along with, with these kind of draft statements, push them back to the committees so the committees can take all that input and, and basically go through, look at the resolutions that have been adopted in the past, uh, look at some of the other you know, things happening um, that we've taken positions on, whether they be laws or regulations or guidelines, and try to essentially vet these get them a little bit more fully cooked, and uh, then look at sending them forward as either resolutions um, or actions for staff to take a look at.
So here we go. The first one is the ACB endorses um, a, a, the strengthening and refining of the pedestrian right-of-way accessibility guidelines uh, issued by the US um, Access Board. So those aren't done yet, but we think they should be strengthened, refined, and then, uh, and then implemented so there's some consistency. Um, the ACB, um, again, this is, again, this is a draft statement. It, this may not be true because there's actually um, a, another perspective, but the agents, the ACB thinks that, that, that if we're going to prioritize the installation of accessible pedestrian signals, there should be a rational basis for that. Um, that is consistent across the country. There are other people um, in the Environmental Access Committee um, who believe that we, do, we shouldn't have to prioritize these because we should just, they should all be done. Every intersection should have an APS. So that's a conversation that we'll have. Um, the ACB urges uh, a prohibition against removing an accessible pedestrian signal once it has been installed. Um, we urge the uh, uh, access board to require that uh, any uh, that anytime there is a lead pedestrian interval installed that an APS be installed as well. That, that's in keeping with prior resolutions on that topic. Um, we urge the delinking of paratransit from the requirement to provide from being required only where fixed route transit is required or is operated. Uh, and, and then we support the development of new approaches to paratransit as long as they support the operational uh, and safety needs of people with disabilities, and as long as the new approaches allow um, you know, more, uh, e more even use by all customers, um, including so that people can have uh, access to smartphones, you know, who are using smartphones uh, can have access to the service, um, as well as people um, you know, who don't. So, um, and, and again, the values there are predictability, flexibility, and reliability. Um, we support the work of the federal uh, CCAM and encourage that that group be uh, diligent at, at developing approaches for coordination. And that is it. So that's kind of what we came up with. Um, it's a lot, um, but, I, but again, I think that, that having this in place will really help us to focus our efforts. What I'd like to do right now is, is open the floor and I am, so it's 12.32, so um, why don't we go ahead and just take a, a few comments. We've got about 12 or 13 minutes before Sheila would like us to call a break. Uh, so uh, Cindy, how do you, um, you wanna just, let's take um, sure. a couple at a time and that way we'll keep rolling. Okay, we have three people already with raised hands, four, okay. um, but I'm going to explain how to raise your hand in case people are in here that don't know how. If you're on a phone, it's star nine. If you're on a PC, it's option Y. I mean, excuse me, alt Y. If you're on a Mac, it's option Y. And you just hit the press or raise hand button um, on the screen on your app. And we're going to go to phone number 2811. Go ahead. Hello, 2811. Yep. And if you could also say Hello. your city state, there you are. that would be super helpful. Yes, hi, I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I like what you're saying about disconnecting paratransit from, from the fixed route thing. Has there been any thought into changing the verbiage in the ADA from uh, fixed route to public transit, because here in Salt Lake City, the UTA will take a bus route, change it into an express route, a ski bus, a flex route, um, and then say, oh, well, it's not a fixed route, so therefore we don't have to abide by the uh, you know, abide by the rules because now it's no longer a fixed route. It's an express route, even though it's going to, you know, at a fixed place, fixed time and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if changing the verbiage and also they don't count light rail or heavy rail 
for like the three quarter mile limit, and that would be good to extend that if if you can't disconnect public transit from, from or paratransit from public uh, transit yeah. or, or the roads. Okay, well that's that's a great comment. It is noted. Um, I do want to clarify that light rail is considered uh, local public transit by the Federal Transit Administration. So uh, commuter rail is not, uh, but light rail is. So I would definitely encourage you to, uh, if you believe that, and we've said this, we said this on Sunday, um, say it again. If you believe that your transit agency is not doing what they should be doing, uh, you know, my encouragement would be to start with the transit agency to identify your concern and have it have it documented. Um, and then if the transit agency is not addressing your concern in a way that you believe they should be, uh, the Federal Transit Administration's Office of Civil Rights in Washington would like to hear from you uh, because they are responsible for making sure uh, that FTA, that the ADA uh, transportation regulations are uh, followed correctly. So, uh, but yeah, I, your comment is noted. Um, that issue did come up as far as looking at how agencies interpret the term fixed route public transit. Next and Ron, I, yep. I just wanted to clarify that uh, for some people, I will be unmuting you while somebody else is talking. I appreciate it if you will um, remain quiet until it's your turn and thank Melissa for doing so. Melissa, you're next. Sorry, my phone did go off there. Oh, um, I didn't hear it. You're good. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I wanted to ask a question about the public right-of-way accessibility um, guidelines and I just I just want to say I like that it's pro wag because as a guide dog handler I'm very pro wagging um, but anyway <laughs> so I I am based on the information I've been able to gather some states have chosen to adopt pro ag as enforceable standards like on their you know just they've taken those guidelines and said okay in the state of X you know these are now our standards and they're mandated or they're enforceable. Um, but I am unclear on how many states have done that. And I was wondering if you know. I personally do not. And I'm not sure if we have uh, Chris Bell or if he's able to be tagged in or if Gene Lozano, who might be in the audience, I'm not sure if we have that answer. Um, I think it's probably something we could follow up on uh, if we don't. Um, you know, the bigger question, of course, is ProAg itself, because it's of never course. actually been adopted. So um, I know, and that's frustrating. And I and yeah. so in the meantime, when I am contacted by some of our constituents, um, you know, about issues, it would be nice to say, okay, yeah. your state has or has not in the meantime. Perfect. And uh Chris Bell, I know, was in the off uh, in the audience, so I will look for him if he has his hand raised and find him, and see if he can answer that question. And Rosanna, you're next. And again, so you do need to unmute Rosanna. All right, Brian. Oh, yep. Go ahead. You can go next, Brian. You need to unmute. So when you're given the permission to um, talk, there should be something that pops up on your screen asking you to unmute. If you're on a computer, you can just hold down the space bar and talk. Um, Brian, you should be good, I think. I uh, know, Rosanna. Yeah, I just need the thing. Yep, go ahead. I don't have the, I don't have the piece. We hear you. So go ahead. Rosanna, we hear you. Okay. Okay, let's move on. All right, we're going to go to Ted. Hello. We hear Hello. you. Yes. Hello. Well, now we have two of you. Hang tight. Is that okay. Ted? You, she can go first. Okay, Rosanna, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. What I was saying was um, I like the idea of the the uh, pedestrian safety and I do think that all streets or major roads should have APS signaling um, to allow the safety of crossing, not that it's safe, but at least it gives you the same information that a sighted person would get. Um, mm -hmm. My other thing is that with the paratransit, I, um, I, 
I would opt for the drivers to be uh, trained, obviously, but there's some way that a blind person needs to know that they are the driver for you because you don't want to just get into a vehicle when you're yep. unsure whether they are the actual driver. And yep. my last thing is that I think, I hope that they can put somewhere in the resolution to work on increasing the three quarter of a mile because everybody should be have access to paratransit who needs it. All right, thank you. Okay, and Brian is next. Okay, <laughs> we all the Zoom confusion here, but uh, uh, my comment is is that uh, you you know. We got to really push this thing with the fixed route deal because there's nothing as fixed as a road. And if we look at it from that point of view, uh, you know, your roads, your highways, whatever, they're the, the streets, they're the things that are really fixed routes and they're all public. And so we got to get away from the idea of fixed transit being so tightly interpreted it, and 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 i know that's where we're going but that's that's kind of that's kind of my approach and i think with with as far as ride sharing and as far as like uber and lyft and stuff what i would think would be a good thing that might get the companies on board too is if they could create some kind of a driver certification program and the incentive for the drivers would be if to take this and pass it would be that they get a larger percentage of the ride when they take a disabled person if they're certified. Mm -hmm. And so that would, I think that would, you know, every, that it's a win-win situation for everybody. And that might be an, a way yeah. to alleviate that training thing that people are, are concerned about. Excellent comment. Thank you. All right, Charlene. Yes, I have two comments. One is for the changes to fixed route transit. If that was to have a grandfather clause in, so if I'm going somewhere or I am living somewhere, especially if I'm living somewhere and I'm currently within a fixed route transit um, location to qualify for the aid uh, paratransit, then I need to be grandfathered in because it's not that easy. I look for a place, I found it on the route, and now you move my route. I can't just pick up and move like other people can. It's very difficult for a person with a disability to relocate, as well as orientation to a new location and all that. And, um, oh, the other one is LA has a solution to the um, other vehicle come arriving for you um, because you have an option besides the door-to-door and the curb to curb, you can ask for contact. And what will happen is when they arrive, they will approach you and let you know they're there. Thank you. Perfect. We have time for one more, and then I want to just make a couple of closing okay. remarks before we wrap up. Thank you. Sheila, you're it. Okay. I, am I on? Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, good. I did get the button. Um, <clears throat> I want to add to the folks that are talking about the fixed route issue. Um, I really think that we need to advocate at local levels to make transit go into the smaller blood vessels of our communities, um, period. Because as baby boomers age, there are going to be a lot of people who, are, who weren't on public transit routes, didn't want to be, didn't care, blah, 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 and now they need it. So um, I, I don't want paratransit tied to fixed route but I want people to be able to get where they want to go when they need to get there and when they want to go. Um, and the other thing that I want to add that I'm not sure was captured is um, I want local cards. Like we have the Clipper card in the Bay area, smart cards, whatever they're called to be able to be used for paratransit services. I know that some folks don't know how to do that and I don't think it should be forced, but I would definitely prefer that. I'm tired of looking for cash and coupons. Check. Thanks. Excellent. Great. Thank you. So I know we have lots of other comments and, and we never have enough time. So what I'd like to do is tell you a couple of things and then turn it back over to Sheila. Um, first off, 
if just we don't have it to, already. Can I interrupt you for a second, Ron, sure. and, yeah. and just kind of throw a wrench into the works here? We actually have two whole hours from right now. And mm -hmm. it would be, I think, fine if it's okay with Judy. Uh, and it might be, as you know, what I heard her saying before, that, that maybe we could go for another 15 minutes with comments then take a break and we would still have an hour and a half. Is that? Judy, does that give you enough time to do what you want to do? Yes, certainly. I'm learning from this conversation. I think it's really important. Well, then let's, let's go ahead and work. Let's go ahead and do this. While, while I have the floor, I just want to mm -hmm. say, I don't think this has been captured, but I have stood up at meetings full of grown-up transit professionals and said, mm -hmm. and it, this goes back to something you said earlier, Ron, uh, I you know, I, I really don't think we should fund one more freeway, one more freeway interchange without attaching public transportation to that road. I just think anytime you build a road, you need to put something public in. Um, and I will give it back to you, Ron. And if, before I call on the next person, if I could just let you know, about 20 minutes ago, I was told that there are approximately 700 people tuning in listening to this uh, forum. So I thought awesome. you guys would want to know that. And Karen, you're up. Hi, Cindy. You all can hear me? Yes, we yes. can. Thank you very much. So um, thank you, Ron. I wanted to make the point, and I, I, um, this hit me fairly hard yesterday when, when we were having the conversation about, and I got the impression from what somebody said that most people, most people do use smartphones, and so smartphones should be they're very important. I agree they're very important, but we're also aware where I live in any case, and I have a feeling it's a national thing, that there are a lot of people who are not in the system, who are not members of ACB, let's say, who haven't had services mm -hmm. and who live in poverty and who do not know how to use them. So I really would be very careful about um, making sure that we include people who are less tech savvy so that they so that as we're making this grow, we include everybody. So nobody gets left behind by our excitement about the technology that we have. Am I clear? You're super clear. And I want to just share with the group. Um, and if you go back to the documentation that we posted online, which um, is what there was a presentation on Sunday from a, a gentleman named Adam Cohen from the University of California, Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He um, included in his presentation there is a slide on um, something called steps and steps is an equity framework um, that was developed and it may not have been developed by them but it's being used by the shared use mobility center which is an organization that's advising uh, the federal transit administration on uh, equity issues because there is a requirement uh, in federal law that services that are that receive federal funding um, need to be equitable and they need to be equitable in terms of people who need it, who have accessibility needs, uh, people who have uh, economic needs. So, um, you know, for example, people maybe who don't have access to a bank account, uh, people who don't have access to a credit or debit card, uh, people who don't have access to smartphones. Um, it, it talks about access in terms of, of time, time of day, access in terms of where you live and where you travel. So, um, there is a framework for equity, and it does include those issues. And I don't think that us, the organization is not saying that those things should not continue. What, the, or what people have said is that it is frustrating when we know that there are mobile apps and web, uh, web tools that are out in the marketplace, but they don't ever seem to make it to the paratransit system. Um, that is what people are frustrated by. It's not that it's not that other people can't use their phone if they need to or um, get help if they need to get help. It's that why is it that all of the good technology is out there on somebody else's platform, but it's never available to us for paratransit? Hope that makes sense. All right, Andy, you're next. Hey, can everybody hear me? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, this is Andy from Lynchburg, Virginia. I am... Uh, the vice chair of our ADA committee at our local transit company. And I think when considering all the resolutions that you had put out, uh, two major things that I see going on 
well, three, actually. One, we need a way to track compliance-related issues because we don't have one, and I don't think most bus or public transit systems do. So right now, if us as a committee tell our bus company something, generally well-intended, it goes into a black hole and we never see it again. Uh, two, we need, if we're going to be able to transform, we need a grace period. And three, we need some kind of funding. I mean, like, you know, some extra support, even if it's not support from the government or the local officials, you know, maybe there should be some way to promote or advertise or bring in some general income outside of fare boxes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I have. Great. Thank you very much. So definitely transparency. I heard transparency of what happens when you make a complaint, um, when there's a compliance problem. See, this all happened when Luther was still here. Uh, Margie, oh, Margie, Margie. You are yes, on, Margie. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to manage your project. All right, I just muted her. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I was trying to figure out who Luther was. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, so, in any yeah, case, okay. um, so yeah, we got you there, Andy. Thank you for those comments. Next, next. I apologize. Uh, That's okay. Um, Margie, you are unmuted. Hi. Thank you. I apologize. I did not hear you call my name. So I, I had not called um, your name. Right. Oh, but ahead. I was unmuted. Okay. You were unmuted <laughs> anyway, because I unmuted uh, you in advance. Go ahead. Okay. I apologize. Um, I missed about the first part of this whole discussion, but I have a question, <clears throat> and it's not a popular question. I believe that we, as blind and visually impaired people, have some responsibility with paratransit. And <clears throat> part of that responsibility is. Prior to the ADA and prior to paratransit, most of us with just blindness as a disability use public transit. From what I observe today, most of us with just blindness as a disability use paratransit. And <clears throat> I use a combination of both. Paratransit is very expensive, and if I could get on a fixed route bus or light rail to go downtown, there's no reason I shouldn't. And I think that this is part of the overall problem, that everybody's using paratransit because many of us are conditionally eligible. And as of today, that will probably change in the future. There's no way to track our conditions. So we get to ride every day if we want. So, Ron, I'd like you to address that, please. And I will go back on mute. Yep. Thank you. Yep. So that, this is a really interesting discussion. And it's one we don't have time for, but I do want to acknowledge the, I want to acknowledge the point that Margie is making. Um, and that is that, uh, you know, whether you have a disability or not, uh, whether you have an economic need or not, whether you have a, um, you know, a challenging life set of life circumstances or not, everybody has to make decisions about how they use publicly subsidized services. Um, and th there certainly are people within all communities who use a publicly subsidized services, whether it's libraries, fire departments, taxis, transportation, you name it, um, in ways that, that, that take up more resource and other people that use it in ways that take up less. Um, and I think there's a conversation to be had around what that you know, what, how should we be encouraging and educating our members um, and the people that we influence to use these, these resources? And, and I do not disagree with that. I will tell you that the industry and me in it, because I, I was in the industry um, about as long as I've been in ACB, I believed initially that we should, that the industry should police people, that we should tell you when you're eligible and when you're not and that we should police your use of service. And the industry put a lot of effort into building uh, tools and technologies and practices to try to police the behavior of adults. As I have gotten older, 
um, and become more experienced both in the industry and as just a human being on you know earth, I think that that method is it doesn't work. And I think it doesn't work for a bunch of reasons. And I think it and I and I think it's unnecessary. What I now believe that we should do is recognize that that people in all walks of life everywhere are going to make the decisions they are going to make for the reasons that are important to them. And what we need to do is do a super good job of educating constituents, customers, about what the service is, why it exists, what it is intended for, what it costs, and helping them make appropriate decisions about how to use it. And then if you have a, a person who is truly abusive, deal with the exceptions rather than setting a lot of rules to manage everybody else. And I think that as an organization, we can help on that educational piece. And I think we can also help encourage transit as an industry to build systems that work for people so that they, don't have, so that they have less of a reason to make choices that we wish they wouldn't make. And um, I think that's, I mean, personally, that's the approach I'm taking in my career. Um, that's the approach I'm taking with agencies that I work with. Um, I, I am no longer of the belief that the industry should police adults. Adults need to police themselves. Um, and you know what? It happens in everything. Um, so let's not single ourselves out. That's, that's just my opinion. I think it is a good conversation for us to have as an organization. Um, it's a long conversation, but, but, and I don't think it detracts from what we're doing here today, which is to really encourage the industry and, and you know, whether it's transportation or city governments or, or the federal government to give the best service they possibly can that's the most accessible that it can possibly be, um, that education piece for me is a separate thing. All right. Bob, you have the floor. Okay. Um, one thing that I just thought of that, uh, that I don't think has gotten mentioned is um, particularly – if if you have a a person or particularly if you're using a platform like uber or lyft um mm -hmm. you know they have a whole bunch of different vehicles and i used to work with someone it's not an issue for me but i used to work with someone who would not use uber particularly when he was going out with his wife because he was afraid he was going to get something like a crv where, like, okay, his wife can manage a Prius or a Camry just fine, but not a CRV. So, like, maybe something mm -hmm. like that should be something that that uh, yep. should be dealt with as well. It, like, you know, only send me these kinds of cars because the I can't... The vehicle standard, yeah. Gotcha. Perfect. Yep. Having the right kind of vehicle to do the trip. Right? Sharon. Yes. Hi, I'm Sharon from Massachusetts, and I have three quick things. Uh, I'd like to echo the comments of the person who was talking about uh, place, people that don't have smartphones, but also wanting to add that in a lot of rural communities, they don't have Uber or Lyft either, because sure. those tend to, to uh, uh, gravitate to places of volume. Uh, the second thing is that my particular paratransit uses curb-to-curb -curb service, no door-to-door, except mm -hmm. in very rare exceptions. And I think for most people, most of the time, it works very well. I would love to have a tracker to know when they're coming, because believe me, it can be cold. But um, I think that might lessen um, some of the issues that are out there. And my third thing is that I think connecting paratransit to fixed route and other paratransits is really important, especially in a paratransit like mine, where they strictly adhere to the three quarter mile. You can literally be one house away from where you can be picked up and you're done. Yep, yep, thank you. Uh, let's take one last comment and then we'll have to, then I'm gonna just make a couple of comments sure. and we'll wrap it up. Marlene is the lucky one. Go ahead, Marlene. You do need to unmute yourself, Marlene. We're not hearing you. Okay. We're going to go to the next person. 
to make Now I'm unmuted. Now I'm unmuted. Sorry. Go ahead, Marlene. Go ahead. My comment or question, when you were mentioning about um, people using paratransit and in some way trying to figure out uh, whether they um, can use it or not, Mm -hmm. because there are some people out there who use it who may be able to use fixed route, but the only problem with trying to regulate who uses it and who doesn't is you have to have a full understanding of that person's disability. It's mm-hmm. not just vision, it's physical, it's, it's because there are a lot of different disabilities out there or a lot of different medical issues that make it very hard for people with disabilities to use fixed route. I mean, yes. I use paratransit and fixed route. Um, even though my doctor prefers that I use paratransit because like in the state where I live, which is Maryland, in Baltimore, they don't make it mandatory to tie the wheelchair down on a fixed route bus unless you request it. Um, mm-hmm. They require it on paratransit, but not on a fixed route, mm-hmm. yep. um, which is why my doctor doesn't like me using fixed route, especially in Baltimore. Now, the county is like Glen Burnie, um, not Glen Burnie, Annapolis and Howard County on their fixed route buses. It's mandatory. They tie down your chair, whether you want them to or not. Right, right. They don't let you. They don't let you ride your fixed route buses. Yeah. Right. Well, I de- yeah, need to. So let me just make sure I got your comment. Your comment is basically that we need to recognize that for folks who are using paratransit, that and this is really one of the issues that the FTA has been paying attention to the Federal Transit Administration is that folks that transit agencies when they're making eligibility decisions need to make decisions that reflect on all of a person's uh, uh, disabling health conditions. So it's not as simple as, you know, one thing necessarily. So uh, anyway, I appreciate that comment. Um, We will, um, I know we have a lot more uh, opportunity for comments and feedback. We will be holding, we talked about this. um, One of the things that came up is the need to hold occasional community calls with um, the ACB and our members and people that want to come and and talk. So we will be looking to hold uh, regular uh, and recurring transportation calls that focus on transportation, uh, pedestrian accessibility, uh, and related topics. Uh, Don't know what the cadence is for those calls yet. Might be monthly, it might be every other week. Um, But we will be looking to do that to give people an opportunity to ask questions to raise concerns and maybe to get help because transportation is a local issue. Uh, it takes a certain amount of finesse sometimes to figure out um, how to solve a problem or how to go about getting an answer to a question. And, and we never have enough time in these meetings to go into all those details. So uh, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we, um, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but I'd like to see us maybe through the ACB uh, Facebook group um, and or through an email address. Um, And I think we have one, but I just want to double check and make sure I know what it is. Um, Give people an opportunity to reach out to us with your comments, with your questions about uh, the draft recommendations and findings document that we posted here um, or any other transportation questions or concerns that you may have. Uh, so that you do have the opportunity to have your question heard and addressed um, because we, you know, we are only as good as our membership um, and we need to support you um, so that you can support us as we try to make transportation better. Um, So I'm going to wrap it up and turn it back over to Sheila, who um, if you want to say anything before you take us to break, Sheila, and then um, we'll be in break. And I want to thank all of you for your attention, your support and your questions. Thank you so much, Ron, for summing up all of the work that we've been doing in our two committees this week and for all of you for being here. And thank you also, Ron, I want to say, for being the one who is a part of the industry and had 
the connections to get us such great contacts. Um, I just want to say two quick sort of housekeeping things. Uh, one, I, I called Tyson Brandon earlier in front of 700 people, and I apologize for that. I was trying to think of his name, and that was the first thing that came out. So um, It's okay. They're both wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know everybody all that well. Um, and then I just want to throw in a quick uh, shout out. Uh, Karen's point was very well taken about you know, that those of us with our iPhones, we want to dash ahead. We want to have everything that everyone else has, as we should. Here in Kansas City, we do have a, a cab company additional piece to our paratransit. It costs a little more, but it's on demand. We have an app. But anybody who wants to use that cab company can also call the same old paratransit hotline and request in the same way they do for the regular paratransit services. So I think it's always possible to get things moving forward and keep things, you know, still available to people who are really not ready for those changes. So uh, I've had the microphone and stole a little time, but now we will be on a break until 20 past, at which time I will introduce our final wonderful presenter. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Cindy. And we'll see you back here at 20 after, 20 past.